WBUR Podcasts, Boston. The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. The sugars are here, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Steve Allman. I'm Cheryl Strayed. This is Dear Sugars. Hi, Cheryl. I love this letter, and I love the person who wrote it. Dear Sugars, I'm a 29-year-old mother of five amazing souls. I started my mom journey at 16. When I found out I was pregnant, I took myself out of high school and got my GED. I started beauty school at 17 and finished at 18. By 21, I'd moved out of my parents' house, had another baby, gotten married, and bought a house. Life has been a beautiful chaos with my wonderful husband. I stopped working at a salon before baby number five was born. My plan was to go back to work once she started school in two years, but now I want to go to college. To many, this question might seem like a no-brainer. They'd say, just go. It will be hard, but you can do it. Can I? No one gets how hard five kids are. I don't have help from family in terms of child care. If I go to college, it will have to be evening classes. My husband works two jobs and goes to bed early since he's up at 2 a.m., seven days a week, with no days off. My going to college will mean he'll miss precious sleep time. There's also the question of money. I just paid off my student loan from beauty school. And what if I don't have the endurance to finish? All that money for nothing. But the alternative is a minimum wage job that I'll be fighting tooth and nail to get and keep. I can't go back to a salon. The pay plus the weekends and after hours are too difficult. The thought of going back makes me cry. What do I do? Do I make our lives hell for four or more years so I can feel like I've finally achieved something and add to my family's financial stability? Or do I continue treading water financially but keep this flow we've gotten used to? My marriage is great, but will it suffer if I go to college? Please tell me what to do. I'm so confused with this life-changing decision. Signed, uneducated and confused. Mm, I like her too. I want to be her friend. And I want to say I don't have five kids. I have two. And I can imagine how much work five kids are. Can't you, Steve? No, I mean, I cannot. It's just you can't. Yeah, no. I can. And, and I'm, I just think uneducated and confused. You don't want us to just to say, just go. It'll be hard, but you can right. do it. I still think that you should think about going. You know you don't want to go back to working in a salon. And you deserve, you know, this moment to step into a pursuit that sparks your interests, that, that in, in your heart you know you want to have, you want to, you want to get a college degree. So go get one. But I, I would suggest that, that middle path of, you know, make the entry a little more gentle than suddenly saying, hello, I'm a freshman, I'm going to take a full load of classes, and I have to be in the school attending. Why not sign up for an online course, sign up for two online courses, maybe maybe take, you know, one class at your local community college, get some college credits, 
before you step in all the way. And I think that that will really be helpful for you in terms of keeping that sense of balance and harmony and flow in your family. And it will also, I think, uh, get your family used to the idea of mom being a college student. I said that I love you, uneducated and confused, because you seem so clear-eyed and honest about having reached a point in your life where, you know, to quote John Prine for the millionth time, your heart gets bored with your mind and it changes you. You know that going back to the salon makes you weep makes you sad, doesn't bring meaning into your life, and you know that you're yearning for something more. But I want to isolate something in your letter that I think you need to pay attention to. You write, I can finally feel like I've achieved something. And I just want you to recognize you have five kids. You've done this with a husband but without family support. You got yourself a GED. You bought a house. You built a marriage. I don't think you're recognizing how much you've already achieved. And you're now saying to yourself, I want to get an education. I want to do something more. But I know that that's a real threat to this happy but precarious and maybe even fragile flow that I've established. You know, in in a short-term way, it's not going to mean that you're around as much for the kids, for your husband. It's going to mean that you're exhausted. Those things are real. Cheryl and I are not in the business of saying, go chase your dreams like they're butterflies. That's not it. You see it. But I think also within your letter, you have to recognize you've achieved an incredible amount to build the life you have. And that is what's going to provide you the power and the confidence, I hope, to, to frankly destabilize your life in the short term so that you can ultimately have a bigger and more meaningful life. Mm-hmm. I just can't finish this discussion without also saying one word about money Student loans. I I know student loans. I was paying off my student loans for my bachelor's degree until my 44th birthday. I made the final payment on my 44th birthday, which was just four years ago. And it was a hard thing. And so I don't want to diminish that. But I will say that I really hope that you will investigate all of your financial aid options. There are financial aid options that are associated with your income. But more helpfully, uh, I do think that there there are absolutely colleges out there who, who offer scholarships and sometimes full scholarships to people just like you, uneducated and confused. My own mom, I will say uneducated and confused, never had the opportunity to go to college. Uh, she, like you, was a teen mom. And when she was 39, uh, she went to college. She went to college when I did. We were freshmen together in college. She got straight A's, as I recall. She got straight A's. She died in her senior year of college over the spring break of her senior year, um, two classes shy of her bachelor's degree, uh, which was granted to her posthumously. Uh, I mean, which was, of course, a heartbreak uh, for many reasons. But, you know, that experience of college was deeply meaningful to her. And I understand everything Steve is saying when when he questions this word achievement, because, of course, you have achieved so much already. But I I also get what you're saying, that you want an achievement that's all about you, that the intellectual work that you do, the creative work you do, the work you do as an independent person, independent of your roles as a wife or a mother. And uh, that's what my mom got to have. And it really was one of the greatest gifts of her life. 
I hope you'll get that for yourself, uneducated and confused, one way or another. You want it, and so go and get it. Dear Sugars, I'm an entrepreneur working two full-time jobs to get my career off the ground. I'm hopeful that my long-term success is inevitable, and then I'll be able to quit my day jobs. However, it's a grind, and I'm exhausted. My partner, whom I adore, graduated from one of the top drama conservatories in the country. He's a struggling actor. He worked a restaurant job for years, but ever since we got together, he's been trying to find more work acting or to find a steadier pay-the-bills job. We both feel strongly that we're a great match, and we feel lucky to have found one another. We're in it for the long haul. There's only one major problem that I foresee. How the f*** do people pay for children? How? Every time I do the math in my head, it hurts. Sugars, I love this man. I don't want to ask him to give up his dream. He's incredibly talented. I believe in him. But how do we have a thriving financial situation without his art suffering? Signed, Broke Potential Mother. Mm. So, Broke Potential Mother, um, there are a few things that you kind of have to step back and, and recognize. You're both in the stage which we would call your apprenticeship. And that means you're paying dues, basically. And that you haven't built it yet, but you're in the midst of building it. And sometimes in that process, the prospect of bringing a child into the system and worrying about financial obligations to raise a child, it seems untenable and completely stressful because you're both paying your dues and doing your apprenticeship, which, by the way, is how people achieve. The thing I think you need to do most centrally with your husband is do a self-inventory and talk about what your needs are and what your wants are. Because when you talk about needing a thriving financial situation, that might mean, and you have to be honest about this, that you see financial security as this, we own our own home, I want to be able to go on vacation, whatever it is for you. Or I have a goal that I want that to be our lives in a decade, and I want our kids to have the option of dot, 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 music lessons, whatever it is. You need to talk with your husband and do a self-inventory, and don't lie to yourself, and don't squint at it. If you have started your businesses and you're an entrepreneur because you want eventually to have a thriving financial you know, life and have that kind of, then be honest about it. And for sure, ask your husband what for you would constitute success. What are wants and what are needs? This is a hard question to answer. So I'm going to try to be really practical, broke potential mother. The way that people do it, there are three ways to do it. Three ways I've observed people doing it. Okay. Uh, one is they earn the money. They have jobs. Sometimes they have jobs they hate um, and they, they bring the money in. The other is they, they have jobs that they hate less and fewer of them and they go in in combination with the jobs they go into credit card debt mm-hmm. ginormous i've done both of those two things right and when i sold wild um i was in more than eighty thousand dollars of credit card debt my husband and i were you know and it wasn't because we hadn't been working our our tails off it was because our jobs didn't pay much we were both freelancers sometimes we couldn't get that job and and we had two little kids, two little kids. and we didn't have any of the third way, the third and secret way that a lot of our peers do it. And that is their parents give them money yep. or they get an inheritance. They have these secret stores of money, this sort of secret wealth, you know, which I, which I remember always feeling a little bit like, 
wait a minute, you know, here we are scrambling and, and you're saying you're scrambling too, but actually your, your parents are paying for this preschool, you know, whereas my husband and I were paying for it on our own. But, you know, we pieced it together. You don't have to worry about how to pay for kids yet. You don't have kids yet. <laughs> okay. And so I, I want to try to, um, tell you that you are not going to succeed as an entrepreneur unless you take some financial risk. Mm -hmm. Your partner is not going to succeed as an actor unless he takes some financial risk. And now is the time to do it. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. So one of the people who really helped me navigate all of this terrain, Steve, is my professor and beloved friend and and, and the amazing writer, George Saunders. Yes. He was uh, my mentor and teacher when I was a student at Syracuse University, getting my MFA there. And one of the things he really was very open about with me and, and, and my peers is this, you know, the struggle. The struggle that these letters are really presenting to us today, like, how do I pay for this? And how do I do that and have kids and be married and pursue my passions and pay the electric bill? And he always had really honest, deeply wise things to say. And his, you know, he's a great essayist and an astounding short story writer. He's published three short story collections, Civil War Land in Bad Decline, Pastoralia, and the 10th of December. His essay collection is The Brain Dead Megaphone. And his most recent book is also his first novel, a brilliant, beautiful novel called Lincoln and the Bardo. Let's give him a call. Let's do it. Hello. George, it's Cheryl. Hey. My my radio show husband here, Steve Almond's on the line with me. I know. Hi, Steve. <laughs> Hi, George. <laughs> so, George, I, I just want to thank you. I think I've thanked you 10,000 times already, but but here we go, 10,001. Um, you know, for always being so honest about your own journey when it came to 
you and Paula trying to figure out how to put this puzzle together of paying the electric bill and also nurturing your creative ambitions. And so... Well, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, so thank you. But I'm wondering if you could share a bit of that story with our listeners. I mean, how the heck did you guys do that back in the beginning? Well, what we did was we just, we didn't think about it. We were kind of both sort of from the working class vaguely, you know, and but had been, had tastes of other kinds of life. So I think when we got together, we just were like, oh, well, this will be great. You know, we'll, we'll, of course, it'll be instantly successful, you know, and we just leapt into it. And that included you know, getting engaged in three weeks when uh, neither one of us was employed and then getting pregnant on the honeymoon and having our, our first daughter right away, you know. So I think, I mean, really, to be honest, the only thing I notice in this generation is there's more of a tendency to want to have things in place, which is totally admirable. But with us, we just had this kind of cockiness that we could make it work, you know. Um, I think if we'd sat down and tried to figure out if we could afford kids, we never would have been able to do it. Because we couldn't. I mean, we just literally couldn't. And then, of course, once you get in there and you you have these little people that you love so much, you, things that you didn't know kick in, you know, um, extra energy for sure and maybe extra resolve. But the love for the kids and your partner keeps you going. So, I mean, I, I felt a little funny even with the idea of advice in these letters because our our thing was just be stupid. You know, we just ran in there and did it. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. So, Before you got on the phone, that's the advice I gave to broke potential mother. I was like, yeah. give it a whirl. Like, take some risks. And you don't have to make, you know, plan your whole financial future. But I'm curious, there was this mm-hmm. era where you had an actual job because you had these kids, right? Yeah, I, I, you know, there's a kind of crossroads moment where like, okay, either I'm going to do the starving artist route and make these kids suffer, or I'm going to suck it up and find in myself the potential to go into a, a job that I wouldn't have dreamed of taking a year ago, you know? And then what I found was actually, that was great, you know, to go in and say, okay, I, I, I have to give up my image of myself as this, you know, scrappy, cool, young bohemian guy and actually put on a tie and go into this job for eight or 10 hours a day. And things start to move around. Suddenly you're like, okay, so these are human beings here. Right. Uh, these are human beings trying to better their lot. That's got to be the stuff of literature, you know. There's right. people here having affairs and trying not to have affairs and being in love. And uh, I mean, there's within that twelve-person company, there was a whole range of human activity. So maybe as a way of gaming myself, I said, "Okay, look, if you are a writer, you should be able to find material even here, even everywhere," you know. Uh, and that helped me a little bit to say, since these are human beings gathered together, this must be percolating into my artistic machinery. Therefore, it's not a waste. Can you talk a little bit, George, just about what that job was since it was so much not associated with your bohemian? Yeah, when you let go of your bohemian scrapping ways, what was the job you took? <laughs> well, it was the first one was, uh, well, there are two tech writing jobs that I kept for about eight years. And the first one was at a pharmaceutical company, and I was basically rewriting descriptions of animal experiments for these FDA documents. So, so not only was it boring and hard, but I, I didn't know anything about the subject matter. And then we moved and I ended up working for an environmental company, kind of doing the same thing, but for um, environmental uh, scientific reports for, for corporate clients. So I was a tech editor, basically. Yeah. One thing that I just want to note for people who know George's work or will go out and find it is, you know, you're talking about being in this corporate world and, uh, but paying attention to it. 
And uh, that is what animates a lot of your beautiful short stories with Sea Oak or any of these stories. Well, thanks. Is that you know that world, and when you were in it, you were paying attention to it. It's the same impulse that causes Kurt Vonnegut to go work for GE and produce amazing novels like, you know, Cat's Cradle that are all about scientific experiments and corporate culture and, you know, player piano and, and Sirens of Titan. His early novels, you can see him observing that world around him, and rather than treating it as an encumbrance or an front to your sense of identity, you're doing what creative artists do, which is paying attention to the world around you and letting your artistic subconscious transmute it into these amazing short stories. There's some kind of a slight change, I think, maybe even from the time that, certainly from the time that I was in school, where, uh, I don't know how to say this, it's a totally admirable idea that everyone should live artistically, you know, that should be creative and should be unimpeded and, and have a beautiful free life. But that doesn't mean that the only worthy livelihood is paid artist. And as we know, those spots are very hard to get. So I, I think part of what um, I, I'm trying to convey to my students is that the, the attempt to do art is noble. You don't have to win. You know, you don't have to make a life in art. Hopefully you will, but but, but you don't have to. Um, but along the way, as, as you just said so beautifully, Steve, that the artistic move is to say, ah, here I am. I'm, I'm in this world. You know, this part of the world I did not see coming, yeah. but I'm going to have the kind of courage to turn to it and go, all right, let's talk about it. It's important, not, I think, not to assume that the artistic life is a given for everybody. The, the model of life for what you're doing full-time is creating. Um, yeah. Most of us, I don't think, get there. I mean, even now, I don't know how it is for you guys, but I don't, I'm still doing a lot of detail work to try to get to those four or five hours a day of Yeah, absolutely. I remember very distinctly when I was younger, feeling really envious of peers who'd had all of these things that I called opportunities, Mm -hmm. Um, peers who got to have lessons, and who got to be sent to camp, and who didn't have to spend every summer of their teenage years working full time at the Dairy Queen, like I did, um, and then having to work my way through college. And, you know, I always thought, well, see, I would be so much a better writer if I had been sent to the creative arts camp instead of working at the Dairy Queen. Right. But actually... And I believe this with all of my heart, yep. is that I learned so much more about the nature of you know our existence by working all those summers at the Dairy Queen, mm-hmm. you know, and having a boss and having a, the customers and having to mop the floor at 11 o'clock at night and you know, all that kind of stuff. That, that stuff informed me. And so th- those times that I thought I was spinning my wheels and not you know, developing my craft... Um, I was actually developing my craft, yeah. and I and, and all that stuff ends up in the work, either explicitly or or implicitly. And you know, I, and I see that too. You know, George, in your work, I see it in your Steve. Like I, I think that that that's a really you know that that the artists have never existed in these rarefied environments. They've always been among us, and they've come. They come from all social classes. Yeah. You know, yeah. we don't know. Um, you know, you could have all the money in the the world and all the support, right. and and right. you still will never finish that damn novel. You know, there's some other engine that drives the finishing of the novel, and it's not privilege, right? Right. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and and read this uh, letter, uh, somebody who's right in the thick of that struggle. Dear Sugars, I'm a major people pleaser, so much so that I feel as though I've lived the first 25 years of my life for everyone else and their expectations. I've been waking up to this over the last few years and trying to correct my life. I'm finding myself feeling lost and scattered. 
My career path has been shaped by fear and expectation. I took the safe route in school and got my CPA. I left journalism school to do this because my mother was going through bankruptcy at the time from her second divorce, and I began to understand the idea of financial insecurity. I had a fortunate upbringing and was sheltered from financial struggles until that point. Seeing what my mom went through the year of her divorce, the same year I finalized my major, scared me. Along the way, I convinced myself that accounting was the path I wanted. Isn't it funny how when we are so miserable, the only way to see the silver lining is to trick ourselves? What a great line. Thank you, writer, for writing that. Although now, I'm not tricking myself anymore. I'm awake to how miserable I am at my job. It feels as though parts of myself have been obliterated. My creativity, my genuineness, my passion. I know my job is just a job, but I am a romantic when it comes to work, and I want to put something out in the world that I truly believe in and that aligns with every fiber in my body. To do less than that feels like I'm robbing myself of my core purpose. The problem is, I feel like I've lost the ability to know what I really want to do. I started asking the question, what am I most curious about in life? I found the answer was people and their stories and histories. That's all I know right now. I don't know if I should quit my job and go back to school. Should I tack on all this debt if I don't have a vision of what I want to do afterwards? I don't know if I can stay in this job or industry much longer. I feel like I'm losing parts of myself. My question for all of you is how do I get one step closer to what's next? Do I quit my mediocre paying job with benefits to work as a barista and figure it out? Do I stay in this job and hope that I can unravel what's next, even though this job is depleting necessary resources? Do I find a way to care less about work? Signed, Career Purgatory. Oh, dear. What do you think, George? First of all, I would kind of be careful about the idea that working as a barista is going to be easier. I'm not sure that's, I mean, I don't know the job in question, but I was, I was at a Starbucks the other day and those guys are working their asses off, you know, I, yeah. my, my advice really would just be, it's wonderful that you have that idea. Now make it real. And that means as a first step, start writing on the weekend, keep your job because you're not wrong about financial hardship. I mean, this resonates with me because I was at this phase for three or four years. I was so afraid to start writing because I thought if I started and was no good at it, that would be the end of the dream. Mm. And so I would just do anything I could to justify not actually sitting down and writing. And certainly when you're working full-time, it's really hard to do that. But I think since it's, we know it's so hard to get a, even a bad book finished. I can attest to that, um, by the way. Thank I you. Think, <laughs> yeah. Me, me me, me, but, but I mean, this, this person owes it to herself to, to say, okay, if you're really serious about this, keep your day job and do it at night and see how it goes. That first sentence, I'm a major people pleaser. I relate to that. And many, many people um, are bound up in that. And and some of people like you, career purgatory, make career choices to some degree based on this sort of societal idea of what is success or what is a real job. And um, a real job is is really, um, that that's like a useless narrative you don't need. So I would say, you know, begin writing and begin working also on undoing um, some of those things that have you know, led you down the wrong path. Yeah, it's so interesting. Uh, I, I was thinking about this amazing quote from the writer MFK Fisher. You know, she talks about why she loved writing was because it granted her the right to be precise about her own life. And and, and that's really just saying I was, I was paying attention to my life. I suddenly had a place where I could pay attention to my life. And career pur- purgatory, I think you're really paying attention to your life. That curiosity is really at the bottom of it. 
you can, as I did, you know, as I was in journalism, I would sneak off on Fridays because I'd started reading, including George's stories, and thought, oh my God, here are these people paying real attention to their lives and, and just using the language in such an imaginative way. I want some of that. What I did is I just, I kept my day job. I tried to pay attention to what I was doing, but I also snuck off and just saw, is this something where I can feed my curiosity? Is this something that grants me the right to pay better attention to my life. Yeah. You know, one thing that I think about with career purgatory is that she says, I'm a major people pleaser. I love this idea that we can take these traits that we have, that we seem to be born with, you know, or maybe karmically they've been given to us and we can just turn them a little bit and make them advantages. So in this letter, the people pleaser yeah. idea is has been a disadvantage, but mm-hmm. I would say as major people, people pleasing myself, if you turn that just a bit, that's how you write. That's how I write anyway. You know, I want to please people. So instead of just pleasing them by my job choice or my performance job, I want to please them with this literary performance that I'm going to do. I see this in my students at Syracuse. Someone will come and say, oh, I've got a big problem with my work and it's problem A. And you're like, huh, okay. Since that tendency is dominating your work, we're not going to be able to just eradicate it. Right. But what if we repurpose it? You know, you've got a very naughty, huge dog who's always knocking shit over. What if you hooked him up to a sled? You know, like that kind of thinking. <laughs> so I think here, you know, if, if a young writer says, oh, I'm so bad, blah, 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 you're like, huh, you know, and rather, rather than you take out the editorial, I'm so bad because I'm like this, you go, oh, that actually means I'm like this. And then you can start using it as a, in a kind of a artistic judo, I think. I need, can I come to your house and, and tell you all about the book I'm trying to write and you can tell me to... Yo, I would love it. I would love it so much. Hitch a sled to it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think, I think you're your own sled. You're not support. You know, career purgatory, I, I think that this letter is kind of like, oh, I'm so sad. I've wasted my time. And we're saying, actually, you haven't wasted a minute. No. And I want you to sign up for a class or take your vacation and go sign up for a workshop in some beautiful place with some writer um, who's a great teacher. And, you know, I I promise you uh, that that will just stepping into creative life will change your life. The fact that you're a CPA is awesome. The fact that you're a CPA who is looking around and maybe you feel oppressed by it, as I'm sure George did in moments when he was working, writing that tech stuff and making copies and so forth. But in fact, it's not in, in any kind of creative work. It's not the quality of the life that matters. It's the quality of attention that's paid to that life. I, I'm sure, George, you would say, if you got a student at Syracuse who's like, I've been working for six years as a CPA, hardcore tax law, you'd be like, oh, oh my gracious, I can't wait to read what that world is like. <laughs> yeah. And you know what I'd say, and I'd say this to our, our correspondent, go get The Pale King by David Foster Wallace. Right. Because that's what that book is about. It's about how is there life in the face of tremendous boredom? And the answer is, oh, yeah, of course, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a wave of thinking that the person attempting to make an artistic path for themselves has to clear the decks. Right. But I don't think that's actually true. I think that the deck being cluttered is part of the path, actually. Uh, yeah, I had this a version of this and I was working in the oil fields in Asia and we'd get two weeks off. So I would go, I went to the Afghan border and I was trying to get into Afghanistan with these Mujahideen guys. Stupidest idea, very dangerous, you know. And they told me, if we if you get shot, we have to leave you. Also, you can't wear your glasses because they pick up the sun and the Russians will say, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I go back to my room and they said, okay, we'll take you in tomorrow. 
And then this was my Hemingway-esque dream coming to fruition. So I go back to the hotel room, and I had this crazy dark night of the soul in which mm-hmm. the main thing was me going, if you die, your mom is going to be devastated, you know. And they don't know I'm there. And I'm like, oh, God, come on. Hemingway would not be worrying about what his mom thought, you know. But I was worrying <laughs> it. But I was worrying it. And and I had this really, you know, it was interesting. I was kind of an idiotic young guy, but I had a, a, a an older version of myself actually visited me that night in my mind. And he said, okay, why do you want to do this dangerous, potentially hurtful thing? I said, well, I really want to be a writer. And this person said, are you writing now? And I was like, no, because I don't know anything yet. Yep. Mm-hmm. And he literally just looked at me like with a silent, like, hmm, interesting. And the subtext was, do we know Hemingway because he went to a war? No, we know him because he was an amazing line-to-line writer. And a little yeah. light went on at that point. And I think I would say that to career purgatory, the, the path that lies between you and that book you dreamed of is actually not a different day-to-day life, except with, as you said, Cheryl, the addition of some writing time. Because the, the, the magic that's going to make her published and beloved, it, it's yet to be found. And it's yeah. yet to be found by that hard sweat equity of, of finding what's unique about your personality. And as Steve said, there's no better way to do that than to put that personality in some odd, supposedly anti-artistic environment and see what it does with that. Yeah, I mean, get that writing time. I mean, the writing time. And also, I mean, this is why, too, when I keep saying, like, sign up for a class or go to a workshop, is you find your tribe. Yeah. And what you realize when you're in the company of other writers is, oh, this is a bunch of people who are making it work in a number by doing a bunch of other things. I mean, even... George, I mean, that's how I met you. You you were working your day job. You were, right. you know, you're a teacher. Um, I, was a and pro, I was your parole officer. officer. <laughs> you know, for me, the the other thing I, I tell young writers is that maybe you could, you could suspend the narrative that says you need eight hours a day to do it. Like when I was working that day job and writing my first book, I noticed that actually if you drop that idea, you can get a lot done in 15 minutes. Yeah, right. You, you really can. You could get, you know, if you, if, and in some ways writing at work or writing when you're tired has a way of focusing your mind. So I would notice that I'd get on some of those hectic days where I just go, hell with it, I'm just stealing 10 minutes. I would get a paragraph that's still in that book 20 years later. You know? Right. Hey, you know, one other thing I might just add to this, and this is something I've found myself saying, uh, I, I teach the third year workshop at Syracuse, and so they're going out into the world. And I've started to kind of ritually say this to one of the last days of class, which is just that kind of just gently say to everybody who wants to be an artist, including ourselves, it doesn't always work. We're going to go into this period of life where we're writing, we're trying to write our first book with a sacred attitude, but also with a, an attitude of self-forgiveness, that your worth as a human being is not tied to your productivity as an artist. Those are uh, wildly divergent things, actually. Some of the best people I know have never written books. It's, it can't, you know what I mean? So I think it's important to say that the pure artistic path is the one that actually is not too tied to the outcome, you know, but it's, but it's tied to the, this, the transformation that happens right. in the effort. I think that's almost like a, like a benediction, you know. Yeah. Well, thank you for your your wisdom and and for you know all the beauty you've made through your creative endeavors. Well, you brought pleasure. a lot of of truth and and beauty into my life. So thank you. Well, thank you for both you guys for what you do. And thanks for having me on. Hope to see you soon. Bye. All right. Take care, hon. Okay. Bye bye. Bye.
Dear Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR. Our producer is Michelle Siegel. Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin. And our editorial director is Samantha Hennig. We record the show at Talkback Sound and Visual in Portland, Oregon. Our engineer is Josh Millman. Our theme song is by Liz Weiss. And other music is by the Portland band called Wonderly. Find us at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. And please, we beg of you, send us your letters at dearsugars at nytimes.com. That's sugars, plural, at nytimes.com. 